The sermon text this morning is from the epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your fatherly instruction to us that is in Your Word. We thank You that You have preserved it, purified for us as, as silver and gold, purified seven times over in a furnace of earth. We ask that we would indeed be built up upon it, upon our most holy faith. We ask that You would mature us, that You would cause us by it to edify one another, and that You would sanctify by this Word, this Word of Your truth. Unify us also by it. And we pray also, Father, that in all the things which come against us as adversities, that we would yet feel Your hand with us and know that You are for us and not against us. I pray, Father, that You would sustain us through all trials and that You would accompany us through a faithful witness to You and through all persecution. We ask, Father, that we will know that You keep covenant with us as You have with with our fathers before us. We thank You that You are faithful to Your church and You will preserve it. So we ask now for Your preservation that we would be kept from error and led in the truth and caused to believe exactly what Your Word says. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, I come to you this morning from Grace Covenant Church in uh, northeast Arkansas. And at Grace Covenant, we have just finished preaching through this little epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And uh, these two verses really stood out in our study uh, because of how practical they are. Every Christian will need these two verses to instruct us how to bear up under trial, under hardship, when we are searching for peace. So I am taking a few sermons, few messages that I preached on these verses today and cramming them all into one. Uh, but um, may, the Lord, may the Lord bless it to us to grow us in our faith. I want to begin by quoting an illustration from another pastor. He said, Years ago, a major art gallery sponsored a competition for painters. They were offering prizes for the best painting on the subject of peace. As the tenders browsed through the entries, most had decided that, at one cer- that one certain painting was almost sure to win. It portrayed this lush green pasture under a vivid blue sky with cows grazing lazily and a little boy walking through the grass with his fishing pole over his shoulder. It really made you feel peaceful. But it came in second. The painting that won was a real surprise. The scene was the ocean. In a violent storm. The sky was ominous. The lightning was cutting across the sky. And the waves were crashing into the rock walls of the cliffs by the shore. No peace. But you had to look twice to understand 
what was going on. There about halfway up the cliff was a bird's nest tucked into a tiny hollow in the rock. A mother bird was sitting on that nest with her little babies, tucked underneath her, sleeping soundly. That was peace. Now I will tell you that I found several versions of that story in my research on the original source. I could not find the original source. And that causes me to suspect that instead of being an actual true story, it is perhaps a preacher's tale. But it is still useful, isn't it? Because it illustrates a very good point. And that is summed up in the word contrast. In, in this little parable or little story, so to speak, it was not the Thomas Kincaid painting that won most peaceful. It was the one that brought out best the contrast between the violence of the storm on the sea and the quiet of those little birds under its mother's pinions. And in that contrast, we see so clearly the definition of peace. Now, you understand that when you hear that story. But what's harder to grasp is the chaos of your own life. You look at your life and you have many things to care about. You have many cares. You have many things that, in the language of this passage, that you are anxious about. Things that worry you. And you might, you might think, I can't ever have this peace because my life never calms down. It's always a circus. It's always chaos. It's always crazy. This is a, this is a promise that is off limits to me. It's prohibited to me. And if God really wanted me to know peace, He would change my life to be more peaceful. He would change the circumstances in my life so that I could enjoy peace. Now that's the way that we want to think. But that is out of congruity with this story that we all understood so well. The contrast is there to show that our God offers to us an inexplicable peace. The text tells you there what kind of peace it is if you look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If your life was as beautiful and as calm and serene as a Thomas Kincaid painting, you would have a very good explanation as to God's peace. Just look. It's an oasis. My life is perfect. You have a good, a good explanation, a good accounting for the peace and serenity of your life. But, if you do have, if you do have situations that are out of your control, circumstances that have brought you to your knees, if you're bewildered at times, well now you have a contrast. And now you get to enjoy a peace that will blow your mind. An out of this world peace. A peace that surpasses your ability to understand it. That is what's on offer to us in this passage. So what I want you to do is I, I don't want you to read this text and think that this is a promise that's out of your league. I don't want you to say, well, my life is too chaotic for this to be true for, for me. I want you to look at this text and say, because my life is so chaotic, this is a perfect promise for me. Because I will enjoy, amid whatever circumstances God sends me, I will enjoy His perfect peace. Because He's in charge of this peace. It's His to give. 
It's not mine to conjure up. Uh, This is called in this text, it's called the peace of God in verse 7. It's peace that belongs to Him. That means He has the copyright on it, the trademark, and the rights to it. And He will give it to His people. And it is a matter of Him giving it as a gift of His grace. And we have instructions to follow in verse 6 as to how to receive it. We are commanded not to be anxious, but there's a reason we're not supposed to be anxious. It's because in the place of anxiousness, we're supposed to be praying. And as we pray, God honors that. He honors our request, just as He's promised to do. And He gives to us peace in the midst of our circumstances. I want to ask you, what would your life need to look like if you were to say at last, I am at peace? All of us think about this. We daydream. That's what that is. You're thinking about what would need to happen in your life to get peace. And for each of us, that painting of what life would need to look like is a little bit different. Now, there is common themes through all of the portraits that we make in our own mind. But for some of us, we would want to have the guaranteed protection and preservation of our loved ones. And if we had that for certain, we could be at peace. For others of us, we would say, you know, if I could just have the healing of some strained relationships among former friends or among my family or in the workplace, if I could just have good relationships, that would give me so much peace right now in my life. Others of us will look at it financially and say, if I just had a big pile of cash locked away in the bank, well then at last I could declare God's peace over my life. Others of us would say, if I could just have political stability and security, safety from wars, safety from the tumults of, of uh, mobs and political movements that threaten me, good government in a free country, well then I could declare God's peace over my life. And others of us would say, priority number one for me is good health. If I could just get the all clear from the doctor on these tests that are hanging over my head, over these bad labs, if I could just have the doctor say, you have a clean bill of health, well then I would have peace. So all of us will point to something in particular that's different. But we all make that portrait in our head. And as we do so, it's us weaving a security blanket for ourselves. And we're asking the Lord to honor this portrait to give us this security blanket that we have picked out, that we have crafted for ourselves. And we say, this would be our peace. But that's not the peace on offer in this text. This peace, once again, calls it the peace of God. It's going to be God's peace for you. Not the peace of your own manufacturing. Not the peace of your own crafting. It will be a good, rich, and right peace but it will not be the one that you have conjured. So we have to trust the Lord as we pray to Him and as we come to Him with all the things that make us anxious. We have to quiet ourselves in the Lord because He cares for us, as His Word says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. One of the things we want to see from the text this morning is that God's peace is portable. It's going to keep guard over us. 
It's going to do the watching over us so that we can do everything else we're called to do. An anxious person is on the lookout for what might go wrong and how to defend against that. How do I hedge against potential dangers and threats? This is what fills the mind of an anxious person. They are filled with cares. They are careful in the archaic English meaning of that word. And one of the old commentators on this text once said that the careful are not prayerful. And the prayerful are not careful. Now again, I want to be specific. The, the use of the word there is in the archaic meaning. It's meaning full of care. Righteous people have to live by the wisdom of the book of Proverbs and other places in the Bible, so they do need to take care. But they will not be full of anxiety and worry, which is what this text forbids. David knew this peace. We hear him speak of it in Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. He says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Now this gets at what I meant earlier by the peace of God is portable. David had some things that were bothering him. He had enemies that were trying to kill him. And he had prayed about that. He had brought it before the Lord. And now he was able to sleep. After wrestling with God in prayer, after pouring out his soul, this is the language of the Psalms for um, when we offer up prayer, to the Lord that comes from our heart. We pour out our heart. As David did that, he was content in the Lord that the Lord had heard him and that he would be delivered from all his fears so he could go to sleep. God's peace was portable. He could take it wherever he went. He didn't have to always keep watch, waiting for the next threat because God was doing that for him. This is a good opportunity for me to jump to this word and it's, Meaning in Greek, this word in verse 7 that says God's peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, it means just what it says. He will, he will keep watch over you. He will protect you with this peace. This is a word that was used in the Greek to, to note a guarding such that, say, it could be used of a city that was a fortress where no one could be let in or no one could be let out of the city. The city was sewn up tight because it was guarded. This is what the peace of God does for us. And it comes from two words in Greek smashed together. One means uh, looking and the other means ahead. So looking ahead. And what this is telling us is that in essence, God is guarding us by looking out for us everywhere. God has us. God has your six. God has you from all directions. He is watching over you. Nothing can take Him by surprise. If you do fall into some miserable situation, that hasn't taken God by surprise. But He has willed it for your good and for your blessing. Remember the promise. Romans 8.28 God has ordained that all things will work together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His, to His purposes. So you can trust whatever it is that happens to you. God is with you. And His peace is still on offer to you. It's not prohibited from you. It is still right within reach. If you will make your request known to Him and pour out your heart to Him. Let's go back to King David. Because the Lord did give him peace, but 
From another perspective, David did not live a peaceful life, did he? Think about David's life. Think about how often he was on the run from King Saul in his youth. Saul spent an enormous amount of man hours and manpower hunting down the newly anointed King David. He wanted his blood. He thirsted to put him to death. There were times where the, the pursuit was so close that they were on the same mountain. There were times where not even on the same mountain, they were within the same cave of the same mountain. That was how close Saul came to finding out David and to being able at last to stab him through with his javelin. On two occasions, he threw his javelin at David, attempting to kill him. At one point, David meets with Jonathan, Saul's son, and they make a covenant together, and David tells Jonathan he knows there is just but a step between him and death. That was how near David seemed to destruction. Now this is interesting for David because it, it's, it's even different than it would be for you. If somebody was trying to kill you and if you were trusting God through it, David's situation was so much different because the Lord had anointed him as king. God had a, a very clear and specific purpose for him and that was a destiny for him to be the king. And yet, he said, there's but a step between me and being extinguished from this earth. So he had to trust the Lord so much more. There was the time that Saul wanted to kill David. That David was married to his daughter, Michal. And David, or excuse me, uh, Saul sent his messengers to David's house to kill him. And they knock on the door and uh, McCall says, well, uh, he's sick. He can't come to the door right now. And the messengers go back to King Saul and they say, well, uh, he's sick. You can't kill him today. And Saul says, I don't care. Bring him up to me on a sick bed. I'll put him to death that way. And had it not been for Saul's daughter helping to him es escape that very night, David would have, would have fallen into uh, Saul's evil plans to kill him. So it was a close call on so many occasions. We can see this in Psalm 23, which is a vivid sketch of a peaceful environment. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures beside still waters. Now that's the Thomas Kincaid version a little bit, isn't it? There's plenty to eat. There's plenty of water to drink. There's no threats because the water is calm. There's no threats. He can lie down and be at peace from, from any uh, threats. But where is it happening? He says, For I shall fear no evil, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This was a portable peace David had. He could take it with him through, the, the, through death valley, through the, the valley of death's dark shadow. He says later in this psalm, the Lord has prepared a table for him. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Very peaceful. Just having a feast in God's presence. But not just God's presence, is it? When you read that psalm, it's in the presence of His enemies. What do you get when you read Psalm 23? Contrast. You have, you have a peaceful environment contrasted with a scary 
uh, intimidating environment. And it's in that contrast that David yet has God's peace. Remember, David's own son tried to put him to death and kill him and take over the throne. Um, in, one, in one hand, you can say David did not live a peaceful life. And yet, that was just circumstantial. David knew a constant peace of God. It was God's peace that was always with him. He could lie down and sleep in peace. This is the peace that's on offer to us in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Now, it is a peace that prevails over our entire being. It says there in verse 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Some people have looked at that and have tried to make some formulations about human anatomy by Paul mentioning that God's peace keeps our hearts and our minds. But this, this really is not at all the point that Paul's making. He's putting these these two aspects of our inner being together as one. And he's saying, any part of you that has the ability to worry is a part of you that the peace of God can reach and cover. There is no part of your being that is capable of worrying about something that God's peace cannot also reach and give to you serenity. So you are not capable of, of worrying in some space or corner of your personality that the Lord cannot meet you there and give you peace in that place if you believe His promise and if you do what He commands you in verse 6. Now the reason for this is that He gives us this peace in Christ Jesus. We need to see that the source of this peace we have is through the mediation of of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God's Son. That's what the text says in verse 7. This guarding that happens of your heart and of your mind is through the person of Christ Jesus. He is the one that stands sentinel over your heart and over your mind to give you the peace that you need. Now when you read the apostles, so often they'll open their epistles with a greeting. It goes like this oftentimes. They say, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So many letters open this way. Many times Paul will open his letters this way. Philippians not excluded. Well, it is because we have experienced the grace of God as the people of God that we are even able to know this peace. It's because we are in Christ. We're in union with Him by His grace, and therefore, we also get the privilege of knowing the peace of God. Those who know the grace of God get to have the peace of God. The two things go together, and it also goes vice versa. Those who do not experience the grace of God cannot have the peace of God. Now, the world can offer peace. There are all sorts of ways of self-medicating, there are all sorts of ways of distracting ourselves and numbing ourselves to pain or to anxiety. The world has a peace that it can offer, but it is empty. You always need more of it. It's not portable. It only lasts for as long as what you're distracted by whatever snake oil or by whatever pitch you're being sold. In contrast, God's peace is portable. God's peace prevails over our hearts and minds. 
beyond any way that we could even describe it. It is inexplicable in the peace that we have, but it is only for those in union with Jesus Christ. Once you have peace with God, you can, you can know the God of the Bible and you can trust His providence. That's where you get the doctrine of providence. And providence, interestingly, is a word that comes from, from Latin meaning to look ahead. God is overseeing all things. He is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And I want to be clear, it's not just that He knows what's going to happen next. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And it's because of that doctrine of providence that we can entrust ourselves to a faithful Creator. We can know God as a loving Creator because we know Him as our Father in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has told us that His Father is our Father. And we can know Him as one who tenderly cares for us. We can ask Him anything in Jesus Christ's name, and He will give it to us. So we have these great and precious promises mediated to us by Jesus Christ. One commentator has said here in Philippians 4-7 that Christ is the channel through which God's people experience God's peace. He is the source and the instrumentality of our peace. Now this should make sense to us if we understand the Gospel because the Father appointed Jesus to be a covenant for the people and to in Him manifest His covenant of peace with His covenant people. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 5 that upon Jesus Christ, upon the Lord's servant to be more specific in the language of Isaiah, which is fulfilled then in the Lord Jesus Christ, upon Him was laid the chastisement of our peace. Whatever needed to happen, to give you peace with God, all of that was accomplished by Jesus Christ upon the cross when He said, it is finished. He fully atoned for all of your sin. Anything that caused you to have enmity with God, with God was taken care of upon the cross. And so now at this moment, as you trust in Christ, He has completely arranged for your peace with His Father and with your Father. Now, this is not a promise that's on offer to the heathen or to secular people until they come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Once they come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then they can come to know the peace of God. And I keep raising this point for this reason. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are decked out with a certain armor as God's people. And he goes through all the accoutrements of this armor and he gets at last to our feet and he says that our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace that is the word that is to be in our tongue we are to have beautiful feet in the language of isaiah beautiful feet that will go to our communities right here locally as well as to faraway places and will announce good news news isaiah says of peace and it is peace that is only accomplished in Jesus Christ, who Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Christ is our peace. He is our peace. Now I say it this way, those who do not know Christ have no right to speak of having the peace of God. 
They're not entitled to it. They have no access to it because they're not able to access that channel of God's peace, which is Jesus Christ. But if that's true, you know what else is true? The converse is true. That you, saints of God, must claim peace. The peace of God because you have every right to it. You have every right to it. There will not be a day when you reach glory that you will not experience the peace of God. And so it is for you right now. Knowing that, you should always have peace. Knowing that the one who has offered to you peace does not give it as the world gives it. But he has overcome the world. And so in the one that has overcome the world, you can have peace on every day of your Christian walk. No matter what's happening, God's peace is not circumstantial. It, 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 is, it is perhaps felt by us more or less, more keenly at, at some times than others. But it's on offer to us to know at all times. And it's on offer to us as portable, something that we can carry with us. Unlike the world, we do not have to be captive to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the tyranny of circumstances. That's how the world gives peace. As long as my life is picturesque, again, compare it to that Thomas Kincaid painting, as long as it's like that, I'm at peace. That's the world's peace. It's circumstantial. God's peace is available to you even in the contrast. Maybe I should say, especially in the contrast. God's peace is available to you. promise of Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 is that you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you what does it mean to have our hearts stayed upon the Lord I wonder have you ever thought to yourself of something that you needed and you spent some time thinking about this need and assessing how you should meet it and you you come to the decision I need to buy something and maybe it's a major purchase like a home or like a car or some other expensive uh, tool or asset and you know you think you need this. And what did you do? You took some time to prove out whether or not you really needed that and, and to assess and test which thing exactly you needed, how best to meet the need. When you experience that, what you're doing is you're testing, is my heart stayed upon this particular thing? Do I really need it? Well, that's, that's the equivalent here of how our hearts need to be stayed upon the Lord. And the promise is, is here that when our hearts are stayed upon the Lord, we will be kept in perfect peace. So if you haven't known peace, certainly if you haven't known perfect peace, evaluate, test have I had my heart stayed upon the Lord? Have I, have I taken my mind and stayed it upon Him? This is what we're called to do. And that, in so many words, is what verse 6 challenges us to do. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You should know that when it says, let your requests be made known to God, it literally means, let your requests be made known before God. What's the difference? It means that you are right there in His presence. 
you are to speak your needs to God in prayer. And you are to know that you're already in His presence. You're already in His earshot. He can see you right now. He hears you all the time. And so this is how you stay your heart upon God. Follow verse 6. Lift up to the Lord prayers and supplications with thanksgiving, making your request known to Him. So you make your request made known before Him, and this requires us to show the faith of Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 6. For he that comes to God must believe two things the passage tells us. Must believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. Again, that diligently seeking corresponds to having your heart stayed upon Him. So you must know you're in God's presence and He will reward you as you offer up prayers and supplications with thanksgiving and requests. Now repeat those four words for prayer there to show the depth of a prayer life that we're to cultivate. We are not to be uh, shallow in our praying. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us, Pray without ceasing. And this means we have cultivated a prayer life. We have a lifestyle of praying. How do you know when to pray? How do you know if you're following Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and what it commands us to do? Well, look at your anxieties. Are you praying as often as you're anxious? Are you praying as often as what you worry? Only then are you Are you really dealing with your anxiety in a biblical manner? The command is do not be anxious for anything. Now this is is a sin of worry that, that we're easily guilty of. Jesus says we're guilty of this sin as soon as we worry about what we're going to eat or drink tomorrow. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, your worry accomplishes so little. Which of you by worrying can change how tall you are or can... Uh, change uh, you know, the number of your hairs or anything about them, you're incapable of changing anything by your worry. Reminds me of something that Mark Twain once said. He said, I'm an old man and I've seen a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. This is what our imaginations are capable of. We're capable of torturing ourselves with worry. That's what your heart and your mind can do if you let it go unchecked. But if you diligently seek the Lord, if you stay your heart upon Him, if you commit to praying as often as what you're worried, and if you offer up to Him prayers and supplications with thanksgiving, making your request known before God, then you will have that supernatural peace that is beyond explanation. I want to begin to wrap up here and tell you a story of, uh, that comes from a show that I watched several months ago. The name of the show is Undercover Billionaire. It's a reality TV show. Uh, I enjoyed the episodes I saw, and it's like so many TV shows that you can't recommend it to, any, to just anyone. You can't recommend all of it. Uh, it's that sort of show just like anything else. But in the episodes I, sh- I saw... I saw something that brings this lesson to powerful effect. The whole premise of the show is, can we take someone that has reached billionaire net worth 
and drop them into a new community, a small community, give them a new identity, give them just a phone, a vehicle, and a hundred bucks, and in 90 days' time, could they build a million-dollar business? That's the question. Well, in, in this particular episode, the billionaire's name was Grant Cardone. And he's a highly successful man out of Los Angeles, a city of 12 million people. And he was dropped into the little town of Pueblo, Colorado, a city of about 100,000 people. And again, all he had was those few items. The clothes on his back, 100 bucks, a phone, and a vehicle to ride around in. And as he goes around Pueblo, he's making friends, making connections, seeing who he can cut deals with. He meets a man named Matt Smith. Matt Smith is an established Pueblo businessman. He has many businesses that are going strong. And he begins speaking with Grant Cardone, but he does not know him as Grant Cardone. He knows him as Lewis Curtis. And Grant Cardone is incognito. He's changed his appearance so that if you did know him, you couldn't recognize him. So throughout his relationship with Matt Smith, they're, they're planning a new business. They're talking about where, where they'll get the assets and what the business plan will be. Well, as it turns out, Grant Cardone has about 100% of the business plan and none of the assets to support it. And he wants to partner with Matt Smith that Matt Smith will have 100% of the assets to, to support it and not really much in the business plan. And there comes this heated moment where Lewis Curtis is arguing for 51% control of the company that they're setting up. And Matt Smith cannot have it. Why am I going to give you what, what amounts to complete control of this company when it's my life, my assets? Now I want to pause it there and say what was so interesting to me in that moment was the tension of Lewis Curtis's real identity. In reality, he's a billionaire. Now, I can see with Lewis Curtis, any of us would have a problem handing over our money to him. I once worked at a brokerage where our motto was, you mess with my money, you mess with my life. It's very difficult to hand that over, to trust that over to someone else. It would be hard to hand over your money or your life to a man that you just met, to a Lewis Curtis. But had Matt Smith known who he was really dealing with, that it was Grant Cardone, who had been successful a dozen times over with, with many businesses and reached billionaire status. Had he known who he was, he would not have hesitated to allow him to manage his money. Had he only known. And so it is with us. If we only knew our God, if we only knew His power and what He's capable of, would we worry to trust Him with all of our money? Would, would we worry to trust Him with all of our life? Is there anything that you would withhold from Him when you recognize Him as the sovereign Creator of the universe who has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass and has promised you in particular that whatever happens to you, if you love Him, and as much as you're called to His purposes, it will work together for good. This reminds us that peace is the Savior's legacy, to quote another commentator. Peace is the Lord Jesus Christ's legacy to His people. Now, I understand from talking to your pastor that you just heard that passage from John chapter 20 where the Lord 
in those last days after His resurrection, He appears to His disciples. He enters a closed room with them. And He says, Peace be unto you. And again, He says, Peace be unto you. And He breathes upon them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Peace is the Savior's legacy. It is the legacy of the second person of the Trinity. He is the one that stands sentinel over your life. And He has also sent you the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that you will at all times, in all places, be kept in perfect peace. That's what's on offer. In Philippians chapter 4, you are not prohibited from it if your life is chaotic. It's all the more reason for you to gloriously and beautifully enjoy the contrast to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are always with us and that your Son has said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that he has sent us another comforter whose fruit is peace. We thank you, Father, for the peace that is our Savior's legacy and we, we give you thanks that we get to enjoy this. Not as the world gives peace, not circumstantially, but that at all times and in all places, this peace is on offer to us. We ask, Father, that you will comfort us. We are often bewildered. We are sheep that are easily afraid and intimidated and scared. There are many things that we regard as a wolf at the door. But we pray, Father, that you would you would make us to know that peace that is beyond our comprehension. For each one of us, I pray that as your saints trusting in Christ, we will get to know this peace and know that Jesus stands sentinel over our hearts and minds. In the glory of your name, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.